Hello, friends. Rick Thomas here. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. What I need for you to do is to put on your thinking cap. I want to work through a delicate podcast. Uh, There are several contours here. I want to be careful in my communication. I want to serve you well. I don't want to be unkind, but yet I also I also want to do appropriate biblical confrontation because there is so much at stake here. I'm talking about this idea of abuse. Abuse is such a huge problem within our culture, also within the Christian culture, that we do want to address it, but we want to get it right. And unfortunately, in some areas of the biblical counseling movement, we are not doing a job as well as we ought to, and so that's why I want to move carefully. I want to be gentle, don't want to be harsh, but I also want to be direct and clear because there is there is a big thing at stake, and that is that there are hurting individuals. I have been writing over the past couple of weeks about abuse. I have an article two weeks ago that I wrote The title of it is, The Abuse of Abuse is Complicating Legitimate Abuse. And then a few days after that, I wrote another article, Abuse is Not the Best Way to Talk About the Problem with Abuse. I'm not writing a book here, (laughs) though this is how I typically write my books. I write articles, and then I collect them, and you refine them, and you challenge me in certain ways, and I hone them, and eventually the collection of articles turns into a book, and that's how it happens, and it works well for me. And though I've been writing a lot about abuse over the past couple of weeks, um, my intent is not to write a book. If that happens, well, it happens. But again, that's not my goal here. I just want to address some things that are going on specifically within the biblical counseling movement that I want to highlight. To give you a little bit of a backstory, I would say about a month and a half ago, I started having conversations. I did not initiate the conversations. They were initiated uh, to me. I was drawn into them. I have been talking. I would say over the past month and a half, I probably have talked to two dozen pastors and biblical counselors about this idea of abuse, and there's a common theme that's running through all of these conversations the common theme is is that we're not doing this as well as we ought to, and there are some specific reasons for it, and some folks have been asking me some questions about it, and so that's kind of, I mean, that's how I was drawn into it, and that is the backstory. Even as I was preparing for this podcast, I had a biblical counselor uh, text me and say, would you call me, please? And we had a conversation, and during that conversation, he was telling me about a pastor that he was talking to earlier today uh, who was struggling with this idea of abuse and how some people are articulating it within the biblical counseling movement. And so over the past month and a half, there have just been There have been scores of conversations and hours devoted to this, and the way that I function to help me to think succinctly and to crystallize ideas in my mind, I have to write. It's been a means of grace that God has given to me where I will take these thoughts, these ideas, these conversations, 
they're not created in a vacuum, isolated, independent of other people. This is a collective thought. But then I sit down and I process all of this iron sharpening iron conversations that I'm having with so many people, and I have to put it in my own words. And, and again, uh, the end product helps me, I, I believe, to think more clearly about a problem, in this case, abuse. And so therefore, I have been writing. And so now I'm up to about 7,000 words with these three articles. And you're welcome to read them. They're free to you. They're pr- provided to you by the folks that graciously support our ministry. And because of them underwriting this ministry, we're able to give our resources away, which I am so thankful for. Their generosity and then the ability to provide you with what I believe are excellent Christ-centered, bibliocentric resources that will help you practically. And so here I am in the third article, and again, I do appeal to you to put on your thinking caps because I'm going to enter into a delicate process, and I want to be careful, and I also want you to listen carefully. And so the first article, the abuse of abuse is complicating legitimate abuse. The second article, abuse is not the best way to talk about the problem with abuse. And then the third article here and this podcast, the title, When the Abuse You See Clouds Biblical Interpretations. Now, let me give you a word picture to help explain that title. Let's pretend that you have a camera lens, and that camera lens is yellow, and you look through the camera lens, well, everything that you're going to see is going to be yellow. The camera lens is an abuse construct. It's an abuse filter. And I am saying that that is a problem. When you look through an abuse filter versus looking through a bibliocentric filter, you're going to see things differently and there's a high potential you could lead people astray. I'm going to give you a real-life illustration of that, of a biblical counselor who is twisting scripture to make a point because he's looking through the lens of abuse rather than the lens of Scripture. When abuse forms the lens through how you view what is happening in your life or among your friends, it may discolor how you interpret and react to those experiences. Now, in this podcast, I am not suggesting at all that the bad things that are happening to you are not happening to you or not happening to your friends. It's not, I'm not talking about legitimate abuse as though it's not happening. I am talking about the lens through which you view those things will give you an interpretation and it might not be the most accurate assessment of the problem. And so I've divided this podcast up and the article that I'm sharing with you into four sections. Section number one is a counselor's call. Section number two is a counselor's eisegesis. I will explain that. Section number three is a counselee's discernment. My appeal to counselees to have discernment about the person who is providing care for them. And then finally, section number four, a counselor's response. Let me jump into part one, a counselor's call. Biblical counseling is not for the squeamish. 
to be a biblical counselor, to do it at this level. I'm talking about high-end formalized counseling. It's not for the squeamish. We can all be disciple makers. We should be. In one sense, we like to say that everybody is a counselor, and that is true in the most technical sense. But as far as high-end formalized counseling, where you are taking on all comers in this context, I'm talking about abuse victims, which are some of the most challenging counseling situations that you will have. And so at this level, it takes a whole lot of compassion, a boatload of courage, and a whole lot of competency to care well for others. And if you are weak in any of these areas, your counseling will be off Not only off, but you may add to the hurt of those within your care. And though a discussion about interpretive filters, this yellow lens that we're looking through, I know that we're ditch people, right? And so in one ditch, there will be a group of people that will be alarmed and angered because I'm talking about this idea of abuse. It happens virtually every time that I talk about abuse because the word abuse is a trigger for so many people. And so even though I am aware that there are some people in this one ditch that will be alarmed and angered, in my view, it would be irresponsible not to discuss this potential problem within our counseling practices. The easy thing to do would be to, would be to talk about other those people over there in the other camp. Uh, we do that probably too often, and maybe we don't do enough of self-assessing, talking about our own camp, our own, in this case, our biblical counseling movement. It's harder. It's more tedious. Uh, it, it can cause more problems. It can be even divisive, which is, again, not my intent. And so sometimes we we can grandstand by talking about those people over there that we all agree on that they are wrong. But I believe that we need to address Every now and then, we need to address the log in our own eye. And so in one ditch, we have the alarmed and angry, and then potentially, and then if you walk across the road, you have another kind, the manipulative, abusive type who would love to take what I am saying and use it for their narcissistic advantage. I have had more than one pastor to write or email or call and say, Rick, someone has taken your article and they're using it like a, like a weapon. And I know they do that. We do that. We can do that with the Bible. We can do that with anything. I mean, if we are selfish and self-centered and, and, and tent or narcissistic advantages, well, I know that there are people in this other ditch, the abusive people who would love to take what I am saying and using it for those for their purposes. And so these conflicting realities between the alarmed and angry versus the manipulating abusive types, it does cause me to ask whether I should say the quiet part aloud, knowing that it's going to rile some while weaponizing others. Well, the answer is a resounding yes, because there is truth here. And if I do not address it, this interpretive problem will only grow worse and the victim list will continue to increase. Now, if you take what I am saying, and if you twist it for your selfish pleasure, may the Lord rebuke you harshly through the community of faith. And I pray that the community of faith will have the courage to confront you. If my addressing a real issue about how interpretations may discolor our counseling applications, if it makes you angry, you're in the other ditch, then I appeal to you to ask the Lord to help you to hear what I am saying. 
while casting out what I do not intend. When talking to any victim of any sin, we, again, I'm under the heading of a counselor's call, we cannot fall into the empathetic trap. Now, I am aware that Many of you have not listened to the corpus of my podcast, and and you would not understand this this interplay between being empathetic and sympathetic. This is something that I talk to our mastermind students about often. It seems to be an ongoing discussion that pops up all along the way. Our mastermind program is our online training program where we train people to be biblical counselors. And when I talk about the empathetic trap, the difference between empathy and sympathy is all in the preposition. Empathy is the preposition in, I in, and sympathy is the preposition with, you are with them. The empathetic trap is when the counselor jumps in the victim's quicksand and they both drown. Empathy is bad. Empathy listens with no parameters, no guardrails, which is a huge counseling problem. You want to be sympathetic. You want to be with them, pulling them out of the quicksand, not jumping in and drowning. And and too often, because of fear, or maybe the counselor is a novice, maybe they're insecure, struggle with fear of man, empathetic listening counselors, they do not question anything that the victim may because the victim may misconstrue it as an accusation, even even when the counselor knows that there are two sides to every story. And so these counselors are novice individuals who do not know how to properly care for the hurting. All robust biblical counseling must include comprehensive research, data gathering, and broad question asking, which includes appropriately talking to all the people who can bring light to what is happening. Compassion with no competency and no courage will further enslave the victim. And then competency and courage with no compassion harms hurting souls. Biblical counseling sits well on this three-legged soul care stool. The sympathetic caregiver, much different than the empathetic one, they stand outside the quicksand, always with them, not in but with, and not so, but not so far in the problem that they cannot pull out the victim. Now, each of us must examine our call. I'm talking about a counselor's call to see if there are any weaknesses, any fears, any insecurities that prohibit us from doing counseling well. And so that is your call. Point number two, section number two, is a counselor's eisegesis. Now I want to get into a biblical counselor who does not do abuse counseling well. And I want to give you one illustration, sadly. This is not a one-off illustration to where uh, he is doing, he's just done this once, but this is a systemic problem uh, with his counseling understanding and practice when it comes to abuse. I titled this section, A Counselor's Eisegesis. 
meaning he's reading into Scripture and making up stuff that's not there. And this is the reason that I'm addressing this problem of how our filter may skew our interpretation and application. It's because I was listening to a podcast from a biblical counselor, one of our people, who made a case for divorce for abused victims according to 1 Corinthians 7.15. Now, this is not new. Wayne Grudem, I believe in 2019 may be the year when he presented a third category for divorce, the abuse category. Historically, there have been two in Matthew 19. Uh, you can get a divorce for adultery, 1 Corinthians 7, divorce for abandonment. Wayne Grudem introduced a third category, divorce for abuse. And this biblical counselor, the podcast that I was listening to, he does not take Wayne's path to the third category for divorce and abuse, but he does agree that there is a third reason for divorce based on his interpretive studies. And so the biblical counselor said this, talking about 1 Corinthians 7.15, he says Paul alludes or Paul infers, though the biblical counselor, he, he doesn't say Paul directly says that you can get a divorce for abuse. So he, he's reading into it that Paul alludes this, even though he doesn't explicitly say it. And then he also, he does add that this is a, his position is an argument from silence. And so that's, that's negating. If it's silent, then he's not alluding or inferring. It's silent. And so it's either an is silence or he's alluding and inferring. So that's odd, but he still maintains, even though it's an argument from silence, even though Paul is alluding or inferring that you can get a divorce for abuse. And then he uses Exodus 21 as case law to support his conclusion, but admits also that Paul doesn't mention Exodus 21 in 1 Corinthians 7, which I'm glad he mentions that because Paul doesn't mention it in 1 Corinthians 7 or any of his writings does Paul mention Exodus 21. But this biblical counselor is reading again into the text and and saying that Paul is doing this. And the reason he argues this, that Paul was doing this, is because Jesus did it. In Matthew 19, Jesus argued divorce and adultery, and he used case law in Deuteronomy 24. And so the biblical counselor reasons that since Jesus used the Old Testament to support divorce, that Paul could do it too, though he admits that Paul was not explicit like Jesus. And so he uses words like allude, infer, arguments from silence, and he's making a connection to Exodus 21 that Paul doesn't make. This kind of teaching is appalling. It is interpretive eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read something into the text that is not there. And the biblical counselor concludes, he says, good people disagree on this with his perspective, as though adding that footnote to all that he said, as though that makes it acceptable. Well, just because good people disagree, disagree, with it doesn't mean you can just make up stuff. When we provide our interpretations of what the authors of the Bible did not say, we are standing on heresy's doorsteps. And this illustration of reading into a text to build a case for your audience points to the problem of interpretive filters altering God's Word. Now, if this error in judgment and practice was a one-off situation, we could overlook it. 
But for too many counselors, it's systemic. This is the lens through how they look at this idea of abuse, and we can do better than this. We can make our cases for abuse without twisting scripture to speak to our audiences. Once you go to this eisegetical misstep, you become blind to your biases, and you will hurt many souls. And it's easy to fall into this trap where this biblical counselor finds himself. I mean, he hears the cries of legitimate victims. We're all there daily. We learn more stories about the victims of sin. Where he is making a devastating mistake is that the cries of the victims have created a filter. I call this the abuse construct. And this filter is how he sees, reads, and interprets the Bible. Ultimately, he will not help the victims that he cares for and wants to serve. And so part one of this podcast, A Counselor's Call, talking about compassion, courage, and competency. This second section I just finished, A Counselor's Eisegesis, where a person reads into Scripture because he's looking through the yellow lens, an abuse filter. Section number three is A Counselee's Discernment. I want to talk to the counselee now. And I want to, I, what I want to do, it's vital that all Christians, particularly those who are in horrific situations, to have biblical discernment about those who are bringing care to them. And so this section, I, I want to give you three, three subsections to provide a hurting individual a few ideas to consider as you think about the person that you want to speak into your life. These three thoughts all represent one theme, a counselee's vulnerabilities. It's incumbent for counselors to understand these three ideas that I'm going to share with you. The first idea I titled, I am vulnerable. The second idea, I want answers. And the third idea under this section, a counselee's discernment, is guard my heart. And so let me take, I am vulnerable. One of the things that makes these inferior counselors, as I just described in the previous section about reading into a text, one of the things that make them so popular is that they can describe what is happening to legitimate abuse victims. They can describe it. They can explain it. This process is what we call descriptive psychology, where you observe and explain what is happening to a person. I mean, for example, the DSM-5... It is a book full of descriptive psychology. It has no answers whatsoever. It's just a book full of labels, and under each label are descriptions. It's descriptive psychology. Let me give you an illustration of a parent with a child with ADHD to talk about this idea of descriptive psychology. When an unsuspecting parent hears a counselor describe their child's behavior to a T, they are overwhelmed with exuberant appreciation because someone finally understands what is happening to them. And what did the counselor do? The counselor explained what the child and the parent are experiencing. And then this is what the parent does. The parent makes a conclusion. If he understands what is happening to my kid, 
then he can provide a solution. You see how vulnerable a counselee can be? Whoever can explain what is happening to a person will be given the authority and leeway to provide the answer. Any hurting soul is vulnerable to this process because they long for anyone to understand them. Being understood is a powerful way that we connect with others. And when you can clearly explain a person's life experience, that person becomes willing to give you power over them. Any person can be this vulnerable. The process works like this. There are four steps. Number one, the counselor describes the problem. Step number two, the desperate parent gives him the right to provide the solution. Step number three, the boy's behavior changes. The ADD illustration that I'm using, his behavior changes because he's dumbed down by the medication. And then step four, the result that I received affirms that the solution was correct. It all began because someone understood the victim. Descriptive psychology is not hard to articulate. All you have to do is observe behavior. If you see enough of the behavior, the better you will become at explaining what you see. In time, the hearers will give you authority over their lives. And from your authoritative platform, you can prescribe anything to them, even from a sincere heart, even if you are isogetically reading into Scripture. And in many cases, the counselee is hearing half-truths. You divide this process that I just described to you into two parts. The first part is the assessment. The assessment is accurate because all the person is doing is, is giving you descriptive psychology. They are just telling you about the victim's abuse. This is what is happening. This is what you are thinking. This is how you feel. This is what's going on in the mind of the abuser. This is why the abuser does what he does. This is descriptive psychology. It's the second part that is the issue, and that is the solution to the problem. Again, nobody would say the abused person is not experiencing something real, the trouble comes when winsome and personable people can describe what is going on, but they do not have the competency or they don't have the courage to give you a fuller range of biblical answers. And so you take this interpretive counseling problem, and then you toss in a pinch of idealism And what you will have is a fan base, a group of people who are ready for what you are suggesting. Now, when I talk about this idea of idealism, what I mean is is that people are hurting, and they know what is happening to them is not how things are supposed to be. And they're absolutely right. We live in a fallen world. What is ideal was in the Garden of Eden, And there will be a better version in heaven. But idealism does not work well in this fallen world. And it's why a biblical counselor has to guard the heart of the counselee. 
We're talking about vulnerabilities under this section. A counselee needs discernment to know that they are vulnerable. And when they listen to descriptive psychology, they can fall for it. And then they give the person authority over their life and they give them solutions that aren't solutions. And then they're vulnerable because they know that what they are living is not ideal. Now, I am not suggesting that you have to accept your life if it is horrible or if your life is not matching your desires. I know as well as anyone what an appalling experience can be for for a victim. My list is extensive. I mean, an abusive drunk dad, an adulterous mother, two murdered brothers, a wife who committed adultery. I understand what life is like in a fallen world. I also know that when you hold your troubling narrative up to the mirror of idealism, you can be susceptible to all sorts of temptations. And yes, our call is to suffer, but I would add that you should always look for ways to alleviate your painful circumstances. I believe our call is to suffer, and I believe you should look to alleviate, to to get out of it. I'm not an advocate of take up your cross and be like Jesus and shut your mouth. I'm not. But I'm also not a proponent of you must have your best life now. There is a middle point between a cross and idealism. When sincere biblical counselors blur those lines, they confuse hurting souls by presenting an ideal that may not be this person's reality. The ideal for Christ and his church marriage, well, that's an ideal and it's wonderful, but we must make sure we're guarding the hearts of and practically helping those who are not living in this biblical ideal. If we're presenting idealism without a cross, or if we're reading into God's word to give folks an out as this biblical counselor did, we're not serving them as well as we should. The title of the podcast is, When the Abuse You See Clouds Biblical Interpretations. The first part is a counselor's call. We need compassion, courage, and competency. The second part is a counselor's eisegesis, where a biblical counselor has an abuse construct and filters to even where he's reading into Scripture and making up stuff. Section number three, a counselee's discernment. We are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, and counselees need to know that they are, and they need to look for these things in the counselor so they are not led astray. And then point number four, a counselor's response. I have three practical steps here, but I'm at the end of the podcast. You're welcome to read the article to finish the rest. I trust you do. Thank you so much for listening.